0: I'm Dean Mitchell, and this is KPMG's Forensic Lens. Detecting lies, deception, and fraud in the world of business. With more of our lives and businesses moving into the digital world, this new era of online deceit is a danger for all Australians. Today, we go into the dark web and find out why and how crooks are finding a new home online. To help us understand how and why foreign organised crime groups are targeting Australians on the internet, We're joined by the man responsible for protecting Australia's national broadband network from online crooks, NBN Chief Security Officer, Darren Kane. Darren, over the course of this series, we've been hearing a lot about fraud at an individual level, at a corporate level, and even in the share market. But what does it mean when fraud goes digital and cyber criminals start to attack us?
1: Well, it's really quite simple. It's just using digital means to do the age-old act of conning, manipulating, and stealing. And while the intent is age-old, you know, the modern technologies make it a lot easier for deceptive people to catch out more of us and to make the use of information about us, it's quicker, it's cheaper than ever before. Now, some of these examples include, you know, the email, instant messaging, social media, multiplayer online video games, SMSs, or even more traditionally, the telephone. And basically, these are attempts to steal a person's identity for financial gain, gain or to control or create false perceptions. And these sort of scams and connings can come in many forms, and the examples include such things as fake news, scams, romance scams are big at the moment, even pet scams. We expect to buy a golden retriever and you end up with something very, very different. Charity scams, investment scams, remote access scams and online shopping scams, the phishing attempts where they're seeking out the lazy fat forefinger, compromising doctored images of people that are fake but look real. This is known as deep fakes. Of course, there's social engineering. And then there's a hacker's attempt to attack a network using credentials obtained by some of the methods I've just mentioned.
0: And you talk there about some of those attackers. Who are they? Who is it that is trying to get into our computers? Who is it that's that's really causing all this havoc for us?
1: A hacker is typically someone who uses their skills to get into a computer system or network. It's usually synonymous with someone who is technically very skilled. But also in the security industry, we also tend to focus more on the general idea of attackers who are someone who are going to attack us with a purpose. In the industry, we sometimes refer to those attackers as bad actors. But because we're talking about cybercrime today, I think that's the wrong language. I'd much rather use the concept of crooks online. So you've got someone with a criminal intent to do us a bad injury, if you like, where we'll end up the victim. So... Yeah, these people are around to damage us increasingly using both technical and non-technical methods. They don't always have to get into our systems. Sometimes they just focus on deceiving us for financial gain, but using technology to do that. Sometimes they don't necessarily do it for financial gain. Sometimes they do it just to prove they can. And look, at the very end of the day, Dean, as security folk, we're trying to protect our systems and businesses and our customers from this malicious activity. And the bottom line is, it's getting more and more difficult to do so.
0: And you and I obviously started both of our careers in the police force and, and looking at crooks. But when we talk about crooks online, what is it that, that motivates those types of crooks or those types of criminals?
1: Generally speaking, attackers are driven by a variety of different motivations. You know, obviously the first one is financial, you know, to get into an organisation's network to extort them, to steal and sell sensitive information on underground marketplaces or to scam and defraud an individual or business to make money. Secondly, there's political motivation. There's bad people who act in the interest of a nation or government, often for geopolitical reasons. Example, espionage, IP theft or disruption. Ideologically, there's hacktivists who use cyber means for the use of awareness and attention to a particular issue or cause. And a really good example of someone who is a hacktivist with ideological bent is, of course, Anonymous, the cyber gang that you hear about so often. Then there, of course, as another motivation is revenge. Disgruntled employees, for example, can compromise the security of an organisation from within, leaking classified information or installing software to help other threat actors easily access a network, or just to get back at an organisation or individual who they claim they have a grievance against. So there's some examples of, of, of the different motivations.
0: And perhaps just to take that crooks online one step further, if, if there are crooks online, then there, there must be good guys online, right? There must be cops online. Is that what your role is? What is your role at NBN?
1: My role is the Chief Security Officer of the National Broadband Network, Australia's biggest critical infrastructure project. And the actual aim and mission of the Wholesale Broadband Network I work for is to connect nearly every premises, small business, large business in the country through a wholesale broadband network. And that's, at the end of the day, probably the bulk of the Australian population. So I own the accountability for managing security risk right across the enterprise. And there's many different areas that actually make up that accountability. Some of the areas I have is obviously cyber defence and one of the reasons we're talking today. So I actually have the cyber defence accountability for managing the prevention and defence of the organisation from cyber attack. I think the most important message I can give anyone listening to this is my job is about saying what is an acceptable appetite of risk in the security regime and then working with the organisation to maintain it within that threshold. So keeping it within that risk threshold, Dean, one of the most important areas for me and one that I'm most proud of is what I call influence and trust. And we have a team whose sole reason for existence here in in, in the network, the security group, is to push out the message of security, hygiene, posture, culture, and our help for employees and customers, our end users, those are the access seekers right across the country, and then the retail service providers, that security is everyone's responsibility.
0: And we've been talking there a lot about trust. Is that becoming more and more important because we're seeing these online crooks turn to gangs and cyber gangs and cyber crime gangs?
1: Look, trust is a word that's often used and I think rarely understood. Trust is turning on a computer and having faith in what you're doing on that computer is private and secure to you. Now, it takes a hell of a long time to build trust, but where an experience doesn't live up to your expectations, it's incredibly easy to lose the trust in the experience. So cybercrime is increasingly a maturing industry. It's worth billions of dollars a year. I think last year's, the report coming out of the ACSC, where the self-report here in Australia, it was a $33 billion issue. Now, it's, it's categorised by a high degree of specialisation and trading on underground marketplaces. And what we referred to as cybercrime gangs or large groups of crooks online, if you like, look, they're highly organised, they're highly skilled, they're efficient, and they're a nimble organisation. You know, the stereotype of criminals being lone actors in a basement or a hacker sitting there in a hoodie in a darkened room. I think is sadly outdated. Many of these gangs are based in jurisdictions where they are afforded a degree of freedom because they don't get overly active attention from local law enforcement, and we've seen examples of that in recent times across particularly Eastern Europe. Or they live in jurisdictions where the law enforcement may not only be turning a blind eye, but maybe in fact working with them. These gangs are ruthlessly financially motivated, which basically means they'll even act as a cartel so they'll collaborate with each other. And many ransomware gangs not only target victims directly, but offer ransomware as a service for other cyber criminals to use. They'll also offer customer service and IT support to victims to even help them pay a ransom. So they've got all points of the compass covered here. These are very well organised international gangs that are financially motivated and working for a political end and are incredibly dangerous. From my perspective, the message is do more to protect yourself. I'm going to use your home as an example. Burger alarms, CCTV, locks on doors and and the family culture of neighbourhood watch and whatever, all good ideas to protect your home. You've got to actually start to think about doing something similar around your digital use and your technology.
0: What role does the dark web play in in their attacks on us?
1: Though this name sounds really ominous, the dark web did not hatch from some evil hacker's basement. The dark web is a network of websites that are encrypted and not immediately accessible without specialised browsing tools. The key thing is users on the dark web are anonymous, so it's heavily used by criminals to facilitate illegal activity, evading government surveillance or censorship, so whilst the criminals exploit the networks and need to sell guns, drugs, contract murders, it's a place also for a legitimate folk. Organisations like the United Nations use encryption to protect dissidents in oppressed countries and monitor the dark web to share data on drugs and crime with the public and global police organisations, such as Interpol. So even though we call it the dark web and it is synonymous with criminals, there is also an effective use for good. And whenever something is used for good, you obviously have cyber criminals or crooks online with that nefarious intent to do people harm.
0: And that nefarious intent, sometimes there's some social engineering and exchange of information that's passed around that dark web where crooks build up those profiles to be used for those nefarious reasons. How does that happen, Darren, and why is that such a concern for all of us?
1: Look, the criminals who are using the online space use the dark web as a marketplace. They take what they've stolen and sell it. Think of it as a, as a pawn shop for stolen goods. It's accessed by using a free security focused browser known as Tor. And it's available on any operating system. So Tor is spelled T-O-R. It stands for the onion router. Think of it like an onion and its layers And that's what the the Onion browser does to internet traffic. It layers upon layers upon layers to make it almost impossible to trace. Therefore, it anonymizes the users. Impossible to follow. And once you've got it up and running, the browser, you subscribe to a, a VPN, a virtual private network, if you like. You download and configure it, and bang, you're on the dark web. So for those really wanting to join the dark web, the actual process is relatively easy. And here's something you didn't know. And a really interesting fact for listeners, I think, most of us are used to website URLs ending in .com, but on the dark web, URLs end with the um, suffix .onion to denote the domain points to an encrypted site and is inaccessible to traditional browsers that lack, you know, the security plugins.
0: Darren, in addition to the dark web, the other thing we hear a lot about is ransomware and ransom attacks. How does that affect our businesses and our corporations in Australia?
1: ransomware and ransom attacks are becoming incredibly common. The actual ransomware itself is a piece of malware that locks or encrypts data on a network. And most of the time it's delivered by way of phishing attacks, that lazy fat forefinger that is busy all the time and, and accidentally clicks on the link, or a fail to patch a network in a net-facing port. They'll actually scan your perimeters, come in through that way, and, um, and once it's in, it encrypts the data on the network and generally demands a ransom to release the data. So if you go to log in, Dean, and you can't log in and you can't access your data, you generally get a message to say you've been a victim of a ransomware attack. Please pay the ransom and we'll release your data. And that's the decision you have to then make. Ransomware losses have gone from effectively zero to tens of billions of dollars across the globe in the last seven or eight years. And what we're seeing now is a double extortion coming out of ransomware attacks. Not only do they actually encrypt your data and say to get your data decrypted or unencrypted, we're going to actually expect you to pay a ransom, to put more pressure on you to make the decision harder. They've also exfiltrated the data out of your databases. So they've now got all of your data, incredibly sensitive, personal identifiable information, which is a privacy breach. And what they do is they ask you to pay the ransom or you'll never get the access back to the data. And not only that, they'll actually sell that data on the dark web, as explained before. The majority of these ransomware uh, gangs or variants and double extortion gangs, they're operating out of Eastern Europe. We used to see ransomware attackers imposing some sort of ethical boundaries around those types of targets they'll be looking for. But increasingly, we're seeing this fade away with the targeting of schools, healthcare facilities, charities, and other settings where people are more vulnerable. As I said, they are not particular. It's all about their success.
0: But what can organisations do to stop that attack or to prevent that attack from occurring?
1: I think firstly, accept the fact that what I'm saying is real. And get yourself, if you've got a a company or an organisation you have an accountability for, or if you're in a position that I have in a smaller organisation, get yourself informed and then have your board or C-suite or the management of the company informed to the risk, because these things do happen. There are many great resources online, and you'd start with the Australian Cyber Security Centre website, and there are essential eight mitigation strategies, which will give you a baseline of security posture that you should be familiar with and implement. Secondly, be prepared to defend. Across the management of cyber defence, there's the identity of threat, the prevention if you can, there's the detection of the threat you have been taken down or compromised, and then of course there's the response, the recovery, and what you've learned, I call it the review. No matter how much money and how good you are, I think given technology and the complexity of the networks and platforms we're now dealing with, you should at least accept the fact that you need to script, have playbooks, train, and train as you fight to respond to a successful attack. And do you have the processes in place for when the day arrives? And I use the concept of the fireman analogy. Sure, fireys are trained to prevent fire and they often give lectures at schools, but ultimately they spend a lot of their time, effort and resources in training to fight the fire and then how to recover from it. And they do that on the basis that they accept the fact no matter how good they are about prevention, there'll eventually be a fire. Same concept here. Look at who you've given admin rights or privileged user credentials to. Make sure you understand who's got them and why they've got them. The crooks will look for weak links. So, for example, board members. It's not a very nice term, but they're called whales, they're called whales because they're big fish. Because they're big fish, they're the ones who are most at risk. So you spend your education efforts there. And then you look at the the executive assistants and um, personal assistants. They'll also be targeted because they are usually the ones that support the whales in managing their online technology. And then social engineering. Be a little bit more careful about how much detail you put up on the different social media sites. Things like um, LinkedIn. Facebook things like Snapchat or Instagram and it goes on and on and on. It's great that you share detail, but if you share too much of your personal detail, you're giving a fair bit of your life away to somebody who's got that nefarious intent. And, look, the other thing that's become quite popular, I should call out today, around the risk is the security of supplier, SOS, Dean. Who's your vendor? Not only who is your vendor and what you know, things have you got in place to ensure your vendor's got good security, But then there's the issue of who's the subcontractor to your vendor. So not just the third party supplier, who's the fourth party, who's the fifth party, who's the sixth party. Because one of them get infected, everything goes laterally. If you make things harder for the people looking to do that nefarious intent, it may make you less of a target or certainly less of a profitable target. And hopefully they'll move on. Now, hopefully the the person next door is taking a lead from yourself and they'll move right out of your street. I don't think they're ever going to go away. We've just got to accept that they're there. We've got to manage that.
0: Hackers, crooks online, cyber gangs, or whatever you call these coordinated groups attacking Australian organisations. One thing we know is they exist and they present a real and present danger. Their level of coordination, planning and preparedness must not only be matched, but exceeded by our efforts to thwart their attacks. Cyber attacks might be the new attack vector, but it's an age old crime, using deception to lie, deceive and defraud. Over the course of this series, we've sought to better understand deception and how it's used against us. Armed with this awareness, we can be better prepared and less likely to fall victims to the dark art of deception. You can continue the conversation and find out more at our website, which you can find by searching KPMG Forensic. I'm Dean Mitchell, And this has been KPMG's Forensic Lens.